Our reading today continues uh, in Psalm 51. You're the one I violated, and you've seen it all, seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then, conceive me a new true life. Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me in to foot tapping songs, set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. Then you'll give me a job teaching rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation, God, and I'll sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear Lord, I'll let loose with your praise. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem's broken down walls. Then you'll get real worship from us. Acts of worship, small and large, including all the bulls they can heave onto your altar. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, thanks guys, for passing out the papers. So we've been in the Psalms of Lent, um, the penitential Psalms particularly, for the last few weeks. And we're continuing that as we move towards Easter Sunday. Um, and just kind of as a reminder, we, we've entered these psalms, these, these penitential psalms as they're called, for the purpose because we believe that these psalms actually help us to be where Jesus is. That in these psalms, we find that Jesus is in the place of our greatest need. These are psalms that encourage us to give up on life, at least life on our own, and get in on life full and forever with God. Previously, last year, we looked at these psalms and we saw how these poetic prayers are structured to guide us along the journey of Lent. The crafted verses taking us deeper into our hearts and finding God's love and vision for life deeper still. But this Lenten season, we've entered these ancient prayers for the purpose of learning to pray like the authors. To actually pray the psalms and to pray like those who knew how to pray the psalms as well. Remember how we've been looking at the Psalms um, these, these last few weeks, uh, particularly the Psalms of Lent. We're using Walter Brueggemann's maybe oversimplified sorting of both the Psalms and our experiences of daily living. What he said is that life, our life with God and our life with others is always experienced somewhere in the flow of being securely oriented, knowing who we are, whose we are, why we exist, what we're for, all those types of things. Life working in the way that brings flourishing and good, and we feel safe and secure. But then there's also those times of painful disorientation. Life is 
thrown off kilter, usually in a way that's unexpected or maybe in a way that, that bubbles up slowly, but either way, it's a way that we don't feel right. There's often usually a pain associated with it. And then surprisingly reoriented. Their life is all of a sudden in the midst of our pain that something changes. Something's reoriented. We find ourselves in a different place. We have a different vision for life. God's given us a greater clarity of who he is. Each psalm, according to Brueggemann, moves in and out of these categories just as our life does. And so how we pray the psalms is we take what is there in the psalms, a vulnerable and bold addressing of God from A, B, and C, from a securely oriented place, from a painfully disoriented place, from a surprisingly oriented place. And then we bring to the psalms our own experiences of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And this is what differentiates praying the psalms from the helpful and necessary study or memorization of the psalms. Is that reading the psalms, the ancient words of our faith family, for what they are, a persuasive, passionate, bold addressing of the Holy One, from somewhere in this flow, and bringing to the psalms our life experiences in the tangle of the same flow of A, B, and C. When we let the words of the psalms evoke in us, bring to mind images, memories, and feelings of actual experiences in our lives and others, and then give voice to what is breathed into our mind and felt in our hearts, that's when we're actually praying the Psalms. That's what praying the Psalms historically in our faith has looked like. Whether the seven Psalms of Lent be the things that we pray, or whether they be one of the other 143. If you remember, our first Psalm of Lent, the first penitential Psalm, was Psalm 6. And in Psalm 6, we were permitted to candidly and boldly address God from the pains of disorientation and the surprise of reorientation. But it did so, it helped us enter into these painful and surprising moments of life by not naming a particular experience. If you remember the way the, the author of Psalm 6 described the pain and the way the author described the surprise was, was, was somewhat universal. There was an ambiguity of the specific origin of the angst. But that, that ambiguity allowed us to pray the psalm now to identify our particular pain points and invited us to add our voice to the psalm of the saints past, present, and future. That the fact that we didn't know the backstory of Psalm 6 actually allowed us to be ones who could enter into our story, let Psalm 6 be a prayer from our own story. Well, Psalm 51 is a little different. We know the story behind the psalmist's disorientation. The full extent of the psalmist's sin, as he says, is well chronicled. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. A story of the psalmist satisfying natural longings in unnatural ways. The subjugating of one subject to an unholy vulnerability and the taking from another what no sovereign was permitted to take, a life. To cover up what was clearly and evidently sin, a clear and apparent missing of the mark of life with God and others. But this prayer is more than a passionate plea amid the pains of crisis of self, like we looked at last week, a crisis of sin, the exposure of our own brokenness. It is a response to a heart pursued. You see, David was king, not because he was the eldest, not because he was the strongest, not because he was the most handsome, but as our faith heritage testifies, because he was, as the Lord said in 1 Samuel, the Lord sought out of their man after his own heart. David was king because he was after God's heart. As 
It's reiterated in Acts 13. It says, God raised up David to be their king, of whom God himself testified and said, I have found in David a man after my own heart who will do my will. David was who he was, and in his position because he had a heart like God's. A heart that wanted what God wanted and went after what God desired. That's who David was. That's why he was there. But now, disoriented by his transgressions and all the complexities and brokenness of life, of power and passion, David's heart, what he was after, wandered. His heart was lost and in need of being found. So God sent his prophet Nathan to confront the king's heart and call him back to his first foundational love. Nathan's confrontation was not of his own making, but a commanded confrontation. Nathan spoke what God led him to say, not primarily as a condemnation of evil, though it was certainly that. It was certainly a condemnation of what was wrong and broken, but more so a pursuit of David's heart. Ironically, the man who went after God's heart was now being chased, followed by the heart of God for him. It's from that realization that David prays perhaps one of the most famous lines of this famous poem. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. As I mentioned, as the story straightforwardly details, it was not only against God who David sinned, was it? Did David only sin against God? David's sin reverberated in dozens of relationships. Yet it's like David knew what Jesus would make abundantly and explicit in his teachings in life. How you relate to people directly correlates to your relationship with God. You remember what Jesus says in the famed Sermon on the Mount. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Somehow our relationship to others reflects and correlates our relationship with God. Or earlier in the sermon, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you might be like your Father, that you might be one whose life is in tune and aligned with the one who calls you child. In some way, David sees that what he has done to Bathsheba, to Uriah, and even himself, was really done to God. It's reverse awareness of Matthew 25. You remember Matthew 25 that started the lint off for us? Where Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me drink, a stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me, in prison and you came to me. I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you did it to me. But rather than when you fed me, clothed me, cared for me, you fed, when you Sorry, when you fed them, clothed them, cared for them, you fed, clothed, and cared for me. The Psalm 51 is more like when you abused them, when you murdered them, when you lied to them and to yourself, you abused and murdered and lied to me. David has arrived at a place each of us must arrive. At least where Lent, rather Jesus through Lent, leads us to a place where we can see that there is no way of being in this world that is not being in the world with to, from, for God. There is no way of being in this world that is not being in the world with God. There's no, no relationship, no context, no place in which we can go in which the way we're interacting with the world is not somehow correlated to our interaction with God. 
David's arrival is signaled in this famed pronouncement and affirmed in a decorative plea. Cast me not away from where? From your presence. And take not, what? Your Holy Spirit from me. David knows at his core that what he's done, he's done to God. And what he longs for is to not be separated from God. To be removed from his presence or to let his spirit be taken from him. Encapsulated in the verses between the revelatory proclamations is a prayer from a heart pursued. But before we get to that, before we get to the heart of Psalm 51's prayer, let me say this. While Psalm 51 is a prayer given to us in the first person, if you read Psalm 51 and maybe your ESV or whatever translation you're, you're reading, it's in me, my, and I, right? That's how it's read. My sins are ever before me. I have sinned against you. But Psalm 51 should also be a prayer that we pray in third person. He, she, they, and them. Think about the psalm from Bathsheba, Uriah's family's perspective. A great wrong has befallen them. Even if, as some scholars argue, Bathsheba was at least somewhat complicit in the affair, both she and her now-perished husband's family find themselves utterly disoriented, life painfully thrown off kilter. And even if all knew the origin of dislocation, all knew why things were unsettled in the way they were, which the story assumes that most did not, the source was the one person to whom they could not appeal for recompense, from whom they could not demand retribution. There was literally nothing they could do about the disorientation that they were experiencing by the sins of another. Nothing. Who did they go to? Who could they run to? The only way for their wholeness for something new to come through their disorientation, would be through something out of their control. For the Lord to pursue the heart of the offender, and for the offender to give in to that pursuit. For the Lord to send someone trusted into the offender's life to speak the truth. To know that God was coming after the heart of the offender, and for the offender to give into the pursuit. And listen, the same is true for you and me. When we find the source of our disorientation to be a crisis of relationship, perhaps mixed in with some crisis of self or faith also, whether that be a spouse, a family member, an employer, a coworker, a friend, a classmate, a person in authority, or a personal acquaintance, what you need more than retribution, justice, vengeance, or the like is not for the person to be cast out, called out, and condemned, but rather to be overwhelmed by the presence of God with them, the presence of God for them and in them, and the presence of God in you. What you need from them, what we need from one another when our relationships are strained and broken, is for the offender to know that God is after them. For the offender to know that God is for their hearts, coming after their hearts. And for the offender to see God in us, and that what they have offended in us is actually God's life. God for us, God with us. And what we need is not for them to say, firstly, sorry to us, but against you, you only, God, have I sinned. Only then can they, as David says in Psalm 51, 13, teach transgressors your ways. Only then can they teach transgressors the ways of holiness, of goodness, and mercy, because they've learned them. In the same way, the only way 
that we can, we can teach transgressors the ways of the Lord as if we know them ourselves. And sinners will return to you just as they did, just as we have. Only then, David says, will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Only then will bulls be offered on your altar. Only then, when according to God's desire and wisdom, he has mercifully caught me and them, will God delight in right sacrifices. Will God delight in the amends offered, in the reconciliation pursued, in the burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, in the actions that come from true repentance. Only then will they, I, have offered what I, them, have, a broken and contrite and refashioned heart on God's altar as we are prepared to be priests, makers of peace between God and one another. That's what the offering of bulls was for, to prepare the, peace to be, the priests to be peacemakers. Only then can recompense and reconciliation and life anew follow, then and not before, then and not without this movement downward into the heart of our neediness, into the heart of God for us and in those whom we sin against. A movement that comes, yes, because we follow Jesus into our falling and His, but also because we are being followed, chased by God, His goodness and mercy, every day we wake with breath in our lungs. From the place where we see our disorientation, no matter its origin, for what it is, of being off with God, for us or in others, and know our neediness, feeling, even if just so, His pursuit, only then do we know that, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Only when we know that God is after our heart, us, the offenders, and also those who offended us. From there, we can pray like the psalmist so that we, too, might praise like the psalmist, that we might be ones who know that we are delivered from blood guiltiness because of our salvation, and so our tongues can sing aloud of righteousness, and our lips and our mouths declare your praise. So as we've done throughout the Lenten series, what we've done throughout Lent this season, let's take a moment and take advantage of this time that we have, a time to kind of step out of the busyness of life, to step out of all the things that we have to do and actually just pray. Pray individually, though together in the psalm, from the hearts that are being pursued. So this is where your paper comes in. So grab your handout. If you're new with us, this is, we do this quite regularly as a faith family. We want to try to take advantage of the time that we're given on these days, um, the quiet kind of space that we have to actually interact with God, to pray to Him, to listen to Him, to have a chance to let the things that we talk about settle on us so that, again, we might be ones who live this out outside of this place. And so if this is a little uncomfortable for you, I apologize. We're just going to be quiet together for a little while, but with some guided prayer time. And so I just want to encourage you to take advantage of it. It'll only be for a few moments, and then we'll continue in some normal things of worship, communion, uh, singing, all those kind of things. But here's what I want you to do. You can grab, grab your handout. You'll notice on the handout a few things. It's Psalm 51, but Psalm 51 kind of broken up a little bit differently, kind of parsed out a little bit differently. What I, wanna, what I want us to do for these next few moments together is I want us to ask the Spirit to lead you to evoke in you an image, a memory, or emotion of an experience of disorientation, the part that says B, giving up to the old, or reorientation, C, 
the giving into the new, one of those two, for yourself or for another. This is what we've been learning throughout the Psalms of Lent. Is that again, we pray these prayers out of a place of painful disorientation or surprising reorientation. So let the Spirit lead you to one of those. Let the Spirit um, lead you to, to kind of land on one or the other. You don't have to pray both. So here's the question you can ask. Are you being led into giving up of the old? Is right now the Spirit, when you, when you read the, first, the, given, the verses under giving up of the old, is the Spirit provoking you to, lead, to give up something? Or when you read the verses under giving into the new, is the Spirit provoking you to give into something, to see something different about yourself or about another? Let the Spirit help you answer the question. Let the Spirit lead you. Don't choose it for yourself. Just take a few minutes and let the Spirit lead you to one of them. But once you're there, let the psalmist's words become your words. Let the words that are written become your prayer from your place of disorientation or reorientation. Let them be your confession as an act of hope for yourself or for another person. Does that make sense? Then after you pray from either a place of giving up to the old or giving into the new, then and not before, let the Spirit draw you into what or who God is pursuing, what God is chasing after. And then you answer the second question. So if you're praying giving up to the old, if you're led to giving up, giving up, see what God is chasing after. The truth from the inside out. That that's what God is after. That's what God is after in you. He's after the truth inside of you. The truth that is you. The truth that is a whole full life in you. And that's what God is chasing after in you when you give up the old. Or if you're being led to, to give in to the new, pray to who God is chasing. What God is after. That He's actually after you. God is actually after you. He's bringing something new into your life, a, a pulling you out of gray existence, putting a fresh wind in your cells, that He wants to be the one to lead you into life beyond what you can imagine or even demand. From there, in the knowledge of being pursued, candidly voice your response to His chasing, using the words, again, from how I respond, from verses 15 through 17, if you need to. Those verses are just there. The how I respond is just kind of a way to give you a launching pad into candidly praying, voicing your prayer to God as you've been led. Now, here's the, here's the one thing, again, for those new, even for us, because this is a different way of doing it than we, we usually, usually do. When you're through, when you're through praying, when you've gone through the giving up or the giving in, when you've come to God candidly after knowing what He's chasing after, you, your heart, then you make your way to the front, receive a communion element. So you're going to take one of these already prepared packets of juice and, um, and bread. And you're going, to, you're going to go back to your seat. There's a prayer that's going to be up on this screen right here. We're so fancy, we got to get an extra screen. You're going to pray that prayer and then you're going to receive the elements. You're going to receive God's life given in pursuit of your life. Okay? Now, if you're praying and you start to hear Chaz play, then it's, that's your cue that it's time to come up and grab your communion elements if you haven't already. Okay? So, so in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to have about five to seven minutes of kind of quietish time, right? To be able to enter into Psalm 51 to be led into Psalm 51 and to pray Psalm 51 individually but together.
knowing that each person around us is praying the same thing. It's coming after God and God's coming after them. So will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that your word was not given to us just for us to know about you. That the traditions of our faith were not handed to us, Father Lord, just to be routines. But that, Father Lord, in so many ways these things are evidences that you have been running after us from the very beginning. So come and find us. Find us where we are. Let us be found by you today. Father, and let us, as we enter into this time, Father, Lord, just be ones who, in being found by you, are open to you, free in you. That what we sang earlier, Father, Lord, is being answered, not by our efforts, by our will, Father, Lord, but by the broken body and shed blood of your Son. That his life has covered our transgressions and cleansed our hearts. I thank you for my friends and for a time to pray with them. In your son's name.